Hey folks, JR, back for another episode of Echoes of Shannon Street Case File. It's going to be episode 78, Press Conference, part 2. Alright folks, we're going to get into some more of Director Holt's press conference. Alright, let's get started. Okay, now we're at the point where Mr. Coleman is calling the police to the Shannon Street address. I believe we have a tape of that call that was placed by Coleman to the police officers. In the bra- excuse me, in the background, you will hear a very agitated voice that we know is the voice of Lindbergh Sanders. Now, we've got parentheses here. At this point, police played the tape of the call placed by Coleman. The call lasted five minutes. The car was dispatched to 2239 Shannon. And, folks, obviously that's the same call that I've got on my site, and I'm sure you've all heard it. And if it, you haven't, you can be sure and check it out. As you can see, the officers that responded on Shannon, as the dispatcher did, had no idea what they were going there for other than what the the information the dispatcher had been able to furnish and that being the information they obtained from Coleman, something about a shoplifting or theft complaint. So officers went into a situation that they had no idea any dangers. That doesn't sound right. That's what it says. Had no idea of the dangers, other than, of course, the inherent dangers in police work. But they were simply there to investigate a call that had been dispatched by the police. The call went out at 9 p.m. to officers Hester and Swill. At 9.04, they arrived on the scene. You heard part of that tape. At 9.06, two minutes, they made the first call for a backup unit. At 9.07, one minute later, they began to call for help. At this time, I would like for you to listen to the description of the beginnings of this tragedy as furnished by Officer Swill. We have a recorded statement that was taken from him in the hospital. And then in parentheses, the text of Swill's statement is on page A11. And folks, we've already went over uh, Ray Swill's statement, one of our earlier episodes. You've heard the description of the activities as they took place inside the Shannon Street address as given by Officer Swill. We have written statements from the seven individuals that I named earlier that were at this location at the time the incident began. And folks, that's the same statements that we've all went over in earlier episodes. Their statements substantiate the description. (laughs) The, let me try that again, folks, I'm sorry. Their statements substantiate the description given by The group that states that Sanders was mad and that was what caused the fight to break out 
in that he saw Michael Coleman strike the officer first. We have several others that are, there are two others in that group, both substantiate what Officer Swill has stated in that Sanders started the altercation by his actions. Both of these two also in their statements say that in their opinion, the officers conducted themselves in a professional manner. And folks, we know that to be true. We went over the, we did go over their statements, or at least we know that's what they said in their statements. I might point out at this time, however, or in trying to be thorough, that some of these individuals, naturally, the accounts vary to some degree. They're very close. Several of these individuals do point out that in their opinion, the fight actually erupted when the officers put their hands on both Mr. Coleman and Mr. Sanders in an effort to get them to go outside. The officers are never accused, even by these individuals that were there, of using any excessive force or striking, as I've already stated. They admit that they passed the first blows. So we do have substantiation of the incidents that resulted in the siege from not only from the officers, but from other people that were present. Included in those statements, one individual states that he saw four people, including Michael Coleman, drag Officer Hester into the bedroom and begin to beat him with a flashlight. This is a kale light. One of the individuals even makes the comment that one blow to the head was so loud that it caused him to turn and look because it was the loudest pop he'd ever heard, he thought. We have another one of these individuals that states he saw Officer Swill drug back into the house and saw him being beat by Sanders and several others, Lindbergh Sanders. He also states that he heard several shots during this period of time and states he saw Lindbergh Sanders attempt to shoot the officer while they were out in the front. Of course, as soon as all this occurred, backup units from the police agency began arriving, and I'll just quickly summarize that particular part of it. There were a number of officers, of course, that arrived on the scene. Two of the first were officers Thomas Turner and Aiken, who both attempted to enter to assist the officers. Officer Turner started in the front door and was immediately struck with some object. It's quite possible that he was also struck with the kale light that had been used to beat Officer Hester. At any rate, he received a serious laceration of the head. He was knocked back out of the house and had to be removed from the scene. Officer Aiken was able to enter through the rear door in an effort to assist the officers. As he entered, he was fired upon. Officer Aiken believes he saw possibly four weapons at that particular, at that point. He was fired on. He returned fire. I believe he fired five rounds at that particular point. He exited the house, reloaded, re-entered, again was fired on. He again emptied his revolver, exited, came back with a shotgun, still attempting to get in to assist the officers. Discharged one or two rounds of the shotgun again until he was forced to retreat. 
We had several other officers that were arriving at that time, and they were attempting to assist the officers. But because of the conditions that existed, just were not able to make entry into the house. During this particular time, one of our lieutenants was outside the door or outside the window. That would be the kitchen window is what he's talking about. At that point, things were stabilized, and they were trying to establish some sort of indication as to who was inside. And Lieutenant Randall, that's not, that's actually Captain Randall. Captain Randall was the uh, shift commander for North Charlie Shift. And Lieutenant Randall heard Lindbergh Sander state that he wanted to be like light, gas, and water that he wanted the people of Memphis to hear when he put the officers' lights out. So we knew from what already had occurred and from what was said at this particular point that we were in for a very difficult time. You weren't inside being held hostage there, Mr. Director, so evidently it wasn't too difficult a time for y'all. I would say that would definitely indicate to you you need to establish a attack unit and get ready to make entry. But folks, we'll, we keep going through this. You're going to see that all the director does is, is give you reasons why the attack unit should have went in. But anyways, I, now I digress. We feared at that time that the principal interest of the occupants of the house was to do physical harm to the police officers and that there didn't appear to be any reason for the activities that were occurring. Okay, well, he just just stated it again. They <laughs> believed that the occupants, uh, all they wanted to do was physical harm upon police officers and they've got a police officer hostage inside oh my goodness yeah let's let's stall around for 34 hours mr director that's a good idea we immediately began to attempt to communicate to try to resolve this to get the officer out we know at that point in time based on things that had been said by occupants of the house that our officers had heard plus and we have some of this on tape that you'll hear in a minute, that the intent was to execute Officer Hester, preferably publicly via the radio. It, it, folks, everything I just read there is reasons why you go in to save the hostage. Just amazing. That was the intent or the purpose in wanting to talk to Mr. C.J. Morgan of WLOK was that he wanted to execute Officer Hester and preferably do it publicly via the radio. That was the intent of his wanting to talk to Mr. Morgan, was that he wanted to execute Officer Hester with the citizens of Memphis listening to the execution. Folks, that's, what is that, three straight paragraphs that the director's given reasons why they should immediately go in to save the hostage who happens to be a police officer? At this point, we made attempts to establish communications with the people inside and determine what we could do to resolve the situation. Oh, my God. 
We are repeatedly told that we have nothing that they want and they have what we want. And we were told that any movement on our parts would result in instant death of Hester. That's paragraph, what is that now? Paragraph four or five, six. At this point, police played, and this is in parentheses, folks. This is a commercial appeal just stating what's going on in the interim of the news conference. At this point, police played a tape of ravings inside the house. Much of the tape was incomprehensible. Very similar to parts of this news conference. Hope continued. This is a fairly accurate statement of the emotional state of the people we were dealing with at the beginning of the Shannon Street situation. From the information we were getting from the officers close to the house, there were absolutely no question in our mind that any effort would have resulted in instantaneous death to the officer. That, that's just we also felt that any effort to enter the house at this time would have most probably resulted in the death of the officer. Police wanted to assess the situation. Ultimately, it was my decision, both at this point and later, to go in, in parentheses. I was backed up by unanimous opinion of probably 250 years of police experience behind me. Okay, yes, Mr. Director. Y'all are sitting around taking votes. That's what you should do in critical situations. For God's sakes, don't use your SOP or your policy or don't fall back on what you've done in the past, like 11 months ago when a different police director did something totally different, like actually followed the rules, actually followed the the policy that you have set up on how to handle a hostage situation when the hostage is being threatened. You have St. Jude, that hostage taker there, Goulet could have easily shot some of the hostages when the police came in the front door. Ridiculous. During the early stages, we did not feel... Well, let me back up a second. That This stuff about, folks, there's an old military axiom, and it, it says that uh, on the eve of battle, you don't, you don't have a conference with all your commanders to take votes on what you should do. And if you want to go back into history, you can see that's what General Meade did at the Battle of Gettysburg, and you see that through the Civil War where commanders do that but anyways all throughout history it goes something like this if you're going to have a a get together a conference of your commanders to take a vote on what you should do that breeds cowardice because you're always going to have commanders who are going to take the safe play they don't want to put their name or their neck in the noose. Though, the fact they even did that tells you he was stalling. Oh, and by the way, the the one chief that voted to go in every time was the chief over special operations, who's over the TAC unit and who used to be their captain. 
if that tells you anything. All right. During the early stages, we did not feel that the hazard or the certain death of Officer Hester and the probability of serious injury to other officers would permit us to make a rescue attempt at that point. Folks, I, I don't use bad language. In fact, I don't know if I've ever used it uh, during this broadcast, but I'm calling bullshit on that statement there. In fact, I would love for y'all to go over that statement and tell me what it means. Usually if you look at a compound statement or question, you try to break it down. Okay, so let's look at this because this is the most ridiculous statement I have, I have ever seen. All right, so we got the early stages. We did not feel that the hazard, okay, so we didn't feel like that the hazard or the certain death of Officer Hester and the probability of serious injury to other officers would permit us to make a rescue attempt at that point. Everything in that statement the director just said sounds like it points to we need to do a rescue. We've got the hazard of the situation. So what, we didn't feel that there was a hazard or that the hazard was too great? Now we've got the certain death of Officer Hester. That sounds like that would probably be important. That might probably push me towards going in. And then we've got the probability of serious injury to other officers. So is he talking about the TAC unit? I've got bad news for you. The TAC unit understands that every time they make an entry, there's a probability they could be injured or shot. That's part of the job. They understand that. If you're going in to save a hostage, a defenseless hostage who's being beaten to death, I think they would gladly take that risk. That's why they signed on. They didn't sign on to the TAC unit to look pretty. Anyways, folks, y'all be sure and look at that statement. And, you know, if, if you can figure out what in the world the director's trying to say right there, y'all please let me know. I would love to get your feedback on that disjointed, compound, multi-complexional garbage. All right. There wasn't a police officer on the scene or anywhere else in the city that wouldn't gladly have taken that risk. Yes, sir, that's right. But we had a responsibility both to Officer Hester, but also to the other men outside. I think that gives you a fair idea of the situation. What? Your responsibility to Officer Hester. Yeah, you had a responsibility for Officer Hester. He's a hostage. You're supposed to save the hostage. You're supposed to rescue the hostage. He's not only in imminent danger under immediate threat of death, he's being beaten to death. That's another compound googly gook of a statement. God, that's ridiculous. In all the training we had in hostage negotiations, the basic policy is to buy time. That's All right, folks, think about that. It is right. It's to buy time if the hostage is not being harmed. He, le he left out that part. 
Can you imagine a police policy anywhere in the country that says, yeah, we're going to buy time and let them beat the hostages to death? It's funny they didn't do that 11 months prior to this, Mr. Director. With time, communications improved. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Sure, Mr. Director. We're able to discover what the hostage takers want. Then negotiation will hopefully resolve the situation. Oh, my God. In this case, the rule book was thrown out. Just the opposite occurred. Yeah, you threw the rule book out, sir. You, You let Bobby Hester die. Communications we were getting on the front end via the radio, and you heard some of those tapes, deteriorated. They they didn't deteriorate. You never had any. There was never any viable negotiations on Shannon. None whatsoever. Folks, we went over the entire case file. We have went over those tapes. Did y'all hear any viable negotiations? There was a telephone in the house, but for the most part, the occupants, Mr. Sanders, would leave the phone off the hook. During the hours and hours of vigilance, we would get through on occasion, but those conversations would be very brief. The statement was made, restated, reiterated that we did not have a thing that they wanted, that they had what we wanted. All they wanted us to do was come get them. Well, folks, I'm, the director host got me convinced right up until the point that we figure out that they didn't go in to get Bobby Hester. So why didn't you? You just made the case to go in. That's about, what, eight, nine paragraphs of reasons why you should go in? All right, folks, that's going to wrap up this episode here. I'm going to have an apoplexy going over this news conference lord god all right folks we've uh we'll be back in a few days and continue to painstakingly listen to director holt tell us why the police didn't go in anyways i forgot last episode to go over the little red square i was so churned up by the press conference part two is even worse so anyways i'm gonna do my little red square here so try to stay on point uh that's 2003 that's when i was in robbery i think y'all seen that picture before that's when i was at the height of my my limited power i had been in robbery for Oh, Lord, four years. I actually knew what I was doing by that time. I actually could make decisions and handle cases and didn't have to think about it. I loved robbery. It was so challenging. That is a difficult, difficult place to work, but, it, man, it is definitely the juice. It never slows down. All right, folks, that's enough. I give up for this episode. Be back in a few days. And as always, folks, I'll see you down the road.